This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Luke chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 27 to 36 today. As we continue our study through Luke's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, there are copies available on the side racks. We'd love for you to grab one of those. You'll just be helped by having a copy of God's Word in front of you as we go through the passage today. If you don't have a copy of the Bible at home, please take it home with you. It'll be a gift from our congregation to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So let's look at this passage together. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help to understand it. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. This is God's Word. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those From whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Lord, our desire is to meet with you now just as if we were on that plane that day listening to you speak these words. Would you give us that kind of attention as if you were speaking directly to us, to our hearts and our situation? Lord, we we need you. This is hard. It's hard for me. And so we ask that you would give us help. Eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Would you open up our lives to you? Jesus, we want to see you. Show us what it means to love and to be loved by you. Mark us out as a people that love like this. We ask that you would do this now. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. This morning we come to the heart of what is Jesus' sermon on the plain here in Luke 6. And the teaching is some of the hardest, I think, for us to hear and obey. But what's so crucial to understand is this. This teaching is actually at the heart of the gospel. There's not a long trip to take from what Jesus says here to understanding the gospel. When you love this way, Jesus says, you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. So we must hear. We must understand. It's significant, I think, back in verse 20, that Luke tells us that Jesus is looking, he's raising his eyes up to his disciples as he's saying these things. That's his audience. Remember, those are those kind of concentric circles of the apostles and then the wider group of disciples and in the crowd, Jesus looking at his disciples. And then here in verse 27 again, I say to you who hear, and you know there's a way to not hear. You and I both know there's a way to hear and not hear, to mishear. We've seen in our study of Luke's gospel that disciples listen to Jesus. They have ears to hear his words. And so may we have ears to hear the teaching of our king. I think part of what it means to have ears to hear about this text is to hear with wisdom, to hear biblically, and not to let extreme examples that rush into our minds as we hear these words cancel out the radical teaching of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I first read this passage, extreme examples come to mind and questions come to mind and are raised immediately. What about if this and that situation? So we need biblical thinking, spirit-enabled wisdom as we look at this passage. And let's just deal with those things right now, up front. Jesus is teaching here to individuals, to disciples, okay? So I don't think that he's talking to nations, or uh, civil governments as he's giving this instruction. John MacArthur is helpful here. Listen to this quote. The turn the other cheek rule cannot be meant to keep civil government from punishing evildoers. To apply these principles in the civil arena would be to surrender society to chaos. Civil government is ordained by God precisely for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Romans 13.4 Justice obligates us both to uphold the law and to insist that others do as well. So reporting crime is both a civic responsibility and an act of compassion. To fail to protect the innocent is itself a serious evil. We want to just understand that. Jesus is not teaching that we we, um, neglect the innocent and that we, we open up our lives to be ravaged by evil people. What we have here in this text are list of examples and illustrations of what it means to look like, or to, to love, rather, our enemy, to look like Christ. They are not meant to be applied literally in every case. Let me just say that right now. For example, in John 18, Jesus is being questioned, you could call it that, by the high priest, 
And one of the officers there doesn't like the answers that he gives, and so he slaps Jesus on the face, likely a backhanded slap that's insulting, humiliating. And at that moment, Jesus does not turn his other cheek and offer it to that man. He rebukes the man. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? So, we need to understand and have wisdom as we look at this, this passage. Leon Morris says it this way. This is really helpful, really helpful. It's the spirit of the saying that is important. If Christians took this literally, all of it literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owing nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. You know, Jesus is about to say, give to everyone who asks. And so, well, I'm giving away everything I have. I have no clothes. I have no money. But, I, but, I'm, but I'm here at church today. And there's another group of people that are just, I'm just taking advantage of that. I'm taking all your clothes and all your money. I'm doing great. Jesus is seeking a readiness from his followers, continuing the quote, to give and give and give. Lust, uh, love, not lust, love must be ready to be deprived of everything if need be. Of course, in any given case, it may not be the way of love to give. But it is love that must decide. And that, that's the phrase that caught me this week. It is love that must decide. Is it loving to give to this drug addict that I'm ministering to cash that I know he's going to use to buy drugs? Is it loving to stay in this physically abusive relationship because Jesus says, turn the other cheek? Is it loving to allow someone to break into my home and hurt my family in Jesus' name? To allow another country to invade and destroy our land? Should we even do church discipline and and exclude someone from fellowship because of unrepentant sin? Or do you want to think biblically about these things and, and wise? And of course we know this is not what Jesus is calling us to. But his point is no less radical. This teaching on love is not pacifism or against self-defense, saying that it's sinful. It's saying love, love is not the same in every situation. We always have an obligation to protect the innocent. Jesus is saying, in all of life, however, love must decide. Often it's loving to say no, to discipline. We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture on these things. And so, defining love becomes really essential, doesn't it, in the Christian life? Just another quick introductory remark before we jump in. I want you to remember the context. Jesus just finished preparing the disciples for persecution. He's talking to his disciples, preparing them for uh, persecution. So these are not just random sayings to be applied randomly in your life. He's saying things like, count it all joy, brothers. Leap for joy when you're reviled and cursed and beaten in my namesake. Well, this fits right into that, doesn't it? As he's talking about how to deal with those people that do that to you because of your relationship with Jesus, who are against you in this life. When you side with Jesus, they're against you and hate you. What are you going to do about it? That's what this passage is about. Jesus says you're going to love them. Pray for them. Give to them. And you will be seen as my sons and daughters. 
And if you step back and look at the chapter as a whole, the source of all these exhortations, look at, your, look at chapter 6 as a whole, at the very kind of the end, near the end. Down at verse 43, there's this teaching there on a tree and its fruit. We need to be sensitive to that. Each tree is going to be known by its fruit. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're getting there. So apart from a complete heart transformation, being made a new tree that bears good fruit, we cannot do this. Our zeal for loving like this has to come from a heart that is captivated and transformed by the grace of God that we've been singing about this morning. We should not be launching a new behavior modification program now. I need to be a better Christian than I have been in the past because I haven't been doing this. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing us back to who we are. Enemies of God that have been made friends. Consider how we have been loved by the Father and then go do likewise. So if you're taking notes, that's the main point of the sermon. For believers, love everyone as you have been loved by God. Love everyone as you have been loved by God. Those, those everyones and alls are, are, are big, aren't they? But we see it there in verse 30. Give to everyone. I mean, it's just, that's an all-encompassing command. Notice how it's stated there clearly in verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So, we're going to ask three questions of this passage as we go through. If you want to take quick and easy notes, here are the three questions. What, how, and why? What, how, and why? If you want to take some extended notes, what is Jesus calling us to? The answer is love our enemies. How is he calling us to do it? Love others as, you, as you'd have them love you. And why is he calling us to do it? For our good and for God's glory. What, how, and why. May the Lord help us to love as we have been loved. Number one, what is Jesus calling us to? A love of our enemies. That's the main point of this section in Jesus' sermon. And we said it all turns on the definition of love. And there are several words in in Greek for love. Leon Morris, again, Jesus was not asking for storge, which is natural affection, nor eros, which is romantic love, nor philia, which is the love of friendship. He is asking for agape, love. And this is love, even of the unworthy, that is not drawn out by merit in the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover chooses to be a loving person. Not based on merit but a choice to be loving. This is a love that's different. Unlike storge, which is natural affection, this is unnatural. It comes by a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. Unlike eros, where we might fall in and out of a kind of love. Nobody's falling in and out of this kind of love. There's no no, no logical reason to love here. This is a a choice that the disciples are making in their obedience of Christ. Unlike philia, this is not for friends only. It also includes enemies. 
So Jesus is calling his disciples to show deliberate affection to those who do not deserve it, to those that even hate them, and that they dislike the most. Maybe this is a good time to get a mental picture of enemies in your life that you have. I don't have any enemies. I'm a Christian. Okay. Me either. But now's a good time to get a picture in your head of what your, who your enemies might be. Who it's hard for you to love. Who it's hard for you to pray for. Maybe some of those are people you've never met. They're public figures. The current president of our, of our country. The former president of our country. An unnamed terrorist who's killed innocent people. Maybe in the way that you were raised, it's a particular distrust for a certain ethnicity, people of a skin color or ethnicity. Maybe it's a religion that scares you and you don't want to have anything to do with. Maybe it's people that disagree with you theologically. Maybe it's people that you would consider to be liberal Christians egalitarians, people who walk in rallies for Pride Month, every single driver in Houston traffic, when you get, try to get to the place where you're trying to go on time and you have millions of enemies. I do. Some of our enemies are more personal. Your boss that takes advantage of your time, he knows you're a hard worker and he takes advantage of it instead of rewarding you. The person that hurt you and is hurting you. The person that abused you. The person that left you. The person that said false things about you that weren't true and others believed it. The person who got mad and actually left the church. Or the person who's still at the church, but you can't bring yourself to talk to them or have a relationship with them. Just put that person or that list in your mind's eye as we go through this passage. Let them just stay there. My list is there. It's in the little box right here. And hearing Jesus' exhortation, main exhortation, verse 27, love your enemies. And then he illustrates what that means in three ways. Notice that. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Easy to say, hard to hear. The progression is interesting. One author pointed out doing good points to loving others with our actions. Blessing points to kind of the opposite of cursing. So, so loving others with our words. And praying is doing good from our hearts. Even for our abusers. So together it's an all-out assault on your enemies in love. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And here's a Kind of a blueprint for how to do that from Jesus Christ. And then he gives those illustrations of loving enemies. And then he moves to, he moves to four specific examples. Example number one, verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And I think the idea here is, is uh, striking on the cheek like in a backhanded slap kind of a way that would communicate an insult. Probably not just a punch to the jaw, but if you're like me, that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, somebody does this to you, it is go time. It's, it's on. 
right? That's every part of you. If you could just imagine the, the temperature that rises up into your face. Jesus says, offer the other cheek. Open yourself up to another blow. Don't retaliate. Turn the cheek. Be willing to open yourself up for humiliation again and again for Jesus' sake. And I think it's helpful to not just think about physical attack here. To think about that insult piece. Especially for your connection with Jesus. Being willing to be insulted. To lose popularity. To lose standing publicly, privately for Jesus. Not retaliating. Although every part of you. Every part of you wants to do it. But enduring insults for him. And then continuing to reach out. Not getting in the last word. That's one example. In the next three, I think, examples are interrelated. So we'll read those together. Uh, verse 29 Uh, The second part there. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to someone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So here instead of personal insult, we're talking about uh, property. They're taking your stuff. A person's cloak is your outer garment, like a jacket. And the, the tunic is like an inner garment, like a shirt. Okay? So he's saying if someone is desperate enough to take your coat from you, maybe the situation is borrowing. They've borrowed it, and it's likely the case, or maybe it's theft. Give them your shirt too. You get that? You're, you're being mistreated, and you're supposed to respond with sacrificial love. Go the extra mile to meet this person's needs, especially because they don't deserve it. I, I don't know about you. Do you live this way, or is it more like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, it's not going to happen again. That, that's the way that's just natural to me. Self-preservation. But Jesus is saying, double down on grace. And then if someone's poor and needy and asks you for something, give to them what they need. Who? Everyone. Wait. What? Everyone? Well, that's what he says. Everyone. But we know we're we're thinking biblically. We're thinking with Holy Spirit-directed wisdom that love is going to decide. But here's the thing. Not love for my possessions. Not love for my time. Love for this person. That decides. He who has ears, let him hear. Are there legitimate needs? Then we're to give and give and give and not demand anything in return. They've borrowed something that they haven't brought back. Uh, Don't hire an attorney. Don't demand that they return it. Assume they need it more than you. And don't even bring it up. This is one-way love. This is uneven love. Undeserving love. They might take advantage of you. They might not ever come to church like they said they would do. They may never hold up their end of the agreement. They might not ever trust Christ. All possibilities that Jesus is apparently comfortable with. The question is, are we? 
So how are you doing so far? I am not doing very well. You may be thinking, I have a hard enough time loving my friends. Those that already like me and want to hang out with me. I'm just trying to love those people. Now Jesus is taking it to a completely other level. Positively, actively doing good to our enemies. Friend, are you, when was the last time you spoke a blessing to someone who was against you? To them, over them. When was the last time you prayed for them? You interceded for them. God, help them. Meet their needs. Save them. Draw close to them. Certainly in the case of physical or or sexual abuse, that may end up looking like praying from a distance. But it's still prayer. Have you been retaliating lately? Returning evil for evil lately with your words or, or just with your heart? You've ever had anger fantasies where you just you get somebody in your mind and think, this is what I want to say to them, and you just let them have it in your mind. Nobody's hurt. Friends, that's a warning sign, isn't it, that we're, we're letting anger find a place in our own hearts. As I read this passage, I, this is what I think. There's no form of hostility or evil that excuses us from Christ's command to love our enemies. So just join me in repenting. Not justifying your sin. Repent with me. And listen to Jesus. He'll help us do this. He helped the early church do this. There's a place when the author of Hebrews is writing to this church and and commending them for this. For you have compassion on those who are in prison. They can't give anything back to you. It's a one-way love. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's a great verse to just turn into a prayer. Lord, make me like that where I put all my stock in this better possession and abiding one and not the, the, the property that I have and the people that can, I love just to get back from them. He's given us his spirit, a boundless reservoir to love like this. If you feel inadequate, you, you should, I do, but you have the Holy Spirit. That's one answer for the next question, how? How is he calling us to do it? Number one, what? Number two, how? And the answer is, he's calling us to love others as you want them to love you. That's his answer. It's a guiding principle for all of life. Verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now this is not really a new, completely new statement. This statement existed already in antiquity, except it was always phrased negatively. So don't return evil for evil, full stop. Don't retaliate. Don't do unto others what they have done negatively to you. So so not a law of love, but a law against hatred. Non-hatred. So sometimes I know I feel this way when something happens and I just don't respond in anger. I'm like, well, that's a win for me, right? 
But Jesus is taking it a step further, isn't he? This golden rule, as it's often called, is much more radical than just not responding sinfully. It's now responding positively in love to your enemy. Think about what you would like other people to do to you. Just do that now. How you'd like to be treated. How you'd like to be loved. You'd like to be listened to. You'd like to be forgiven when you sin. You'd like to be given the benefit of the, of the doubt. You'd like to be cared for, checked on, helped, given another chance. You'd like for people to help you see what you don't see, blind spots in your life, even to be corrected in love. Do that for others. Do that. And others isn't just your friends. It's not just the people that are easiest for you to to hang out with and love. Treat everyone like this. It's all inclusive. And here's why. This kind of love that is positive and selfless and undeserving, it uniquely displays the grace of God. It stands out. It's not common. It's not normal. There There is a kind of love that is familiar to us, that is normal, that is common, that is expected. And that's what he says in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I'm a child of the 80s, and so I thought about Steve Winwood. When he said, there must be a higher love that we need to seek out in our day. If you don't get that, it's okay. Sad if you do. Jesus is, in effect, saying, this kind of worldly love, it just doesn't count. It's not love. It's not the love that he's calling us to. So, in other words, you don't need a regenerate heart to love those who love you. To love those who like you, to, who look like you, to repay you when you lend to them, that you're comfortable around, that speak your language, that, that smell like you smell. Even sinners do that. The lost do that. They lend, they help, they love, but only when it's merited, only when it's safe for them, only when it's controlled. I have some friends that in ministry that spend a lot of their time fundraising. And so asking other people for for money for ministry overseas or whatever it may be, and they come face-to-face with this reality often um, with with people who have the means, who are believers, and yet the response is much more an expression of kind of a worldly protection of goods and safety than an open-hearted investment, even with the risks of missions. And often they end up giving nothing. There are other interactions with people maybe who are less well-off and much more eager to give what they have. What keeps us from loving like the world? It's self, isn't it? Self-protection, self-advancement, self-promotion, self-love. And the message people get when we love like that is, do what you have to do to survive in this world. 
do whatever it takes to get what you want, to look out for number one. But when we love our enemies, when we love those who can't do anything for us, who are different than us, we give to them and they can't pay us back, that gives a different message. That puts the power of God's grace on display. Love others like you would want to be loved, and more specifically, love them like you have been loved. That's how we love our enemies. Because we are undeserving of God's love. Whether you put it positively or you put it negatively, we have fallen short of God's standard. We have done evil. We have not done the good that we ought to have done. We have robbed God of his glory by turning away from him as our creator. Our sin against God is the most tragic and terrible reality in the universe. We have turned our backs on him. We've run from him. We've tried to replace him. We've ignored him. We've not loved him. We've spat in his face, broken his commands. And Christian, if you're here this morning and you know the Lord, a great helpful question to ask at this point is how did God respond to me? What did he do with someone committed to lust and greed and pride and sexual immorality and bitterness like me? Who didn't care about him at all? There are three verses from Romans 5 that I think tell us. First one is Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the state of the person when God's grace comes to them in Jesus. Still weak. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So friends, Christian love reflects God's love for us in the gospel. He has redeemed us, the ungodly, while we were still sinners and enemies. So how do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. How do we have patience to endure evil? Because God has been patient with us and Jesus endured it in our place. How do we love when it's not deserved? We look to the cross. We stay near the cross. We set up shop daily at the cross and look up to see the innocent Son of God taking the wrath of God for me, for you. He did not deserve it. He never sinned. He was innocent. And then he stepped into our place to absorb our judgment. So we can sing, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. How vast, unmeasurable. This is, friends, our source of love. It's this love that compels us in all that we do. And if you don't know that love, come to Jesus now. This love is on offer to you. To turn from your sins and put your faith and trust In him, know the love that surpasses all other loves that's found in Jesus Christ. And then you'll be able to love others, even your enemies. We have one last question for this passage, and it's the question of why. 
What, how, and now why? Why is he calling us to do this? Answer, for our good and for God's glory. For our good and for God's glory. So he's concluding this section of the sermon. He's restating the exhortation in contrast to to the world. And then he tells us why he's calling us to love like this. So look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. There seem to be two motivations here that Jesus is holding out. I think it's really just one, said in different ways. Really, we just get more of God. But the first one he says is that you will have a reward. Your reward will be great. Not only is it eternal, but it will be great. There will be much of it. And I don't know about you, but I often struggle with the idea of rewards in heaven. I was encouraged this week by reading something Um, I ran across a quote from C.S. Lewis that just helped to put this in perspective. For me, Lewis puts it this way. He said, A man is a mercenary who would marry somebody for their money. But if he marries for love, he is not. Why? Because marriage is the proper reward of love. So the reward is the person. You marry somebody for their money, obviously we all know. You don't love the person. You don't really want the person. But my reward for, for, for loving my wife is her. Marriage to her. That's what I get. I think that's the idea behind this idea of rewards. If we obey the Lord, it's, and, and, and if we're trying to do this out of some sort of uh, gold or heavenly mansion that we would receive... It comes from a sideways and probably an evil heart. But if we love God and others, looking to an eternal reward, what reward would we desire? What's the best thing He could give us apart from Him? More of Him. A deeper satisfaction and reward in Him. Because He is our portion. So love like you've been loved for the reward of more joy in God. And that in turn glorifies God. That phrase, you will be sons of the Most High. But I think it's better just rendered, you will be like the Most High. Or like sons of the Most High. Or you'll be displaying that you're sons of the Most High. So Jesus isn't saying that if you love like this, you'll be saved. He's saying that you're you're loving your enemies like this is being like Christ. And like the Father. You're displaying a family connection with the Father and the Son when you love the way that they love. Peter goes so far as to say we are actually partakers of the divine nature. Maybe this is one example of what that means. Jesus says that the the Father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Well, we know that's true in salvation, but, but also in a common grace sense. Just think about the kindness that God pours out on the planet every single second of every day. Sunrises and sunsets and crops and rains and harvests and sports and food and family. In Matthew's account, he adds that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So when we in turn love the just and the unjust, 
We love our enemies. We pray for them. Don't respond like the world. We display the very character of God and of Jesus Christ, His Son. That's why we do it. Because we were made in His image. Jesus has come to restore and remake that image for God's glory. And so knowing Him, being like Him, is the greatest reward we could ever ask for. So he's going to conclude by just restating the main point there in verse 36. Be merciful, beloved. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. He's merciful. Aren't you so thankful that he's merciful? Can we just rehearse how merciful he is again? How merciful he's been to us? He sent his only Son to save sinners and every single thing that Jesus calls us to do here in this passage, he did it first. He did it before us and he did it for us. He knows about enemies. Jesus was hated. He was hated by Judas, the Pharisees. He was cursed. He was was cursed by false witnesses who testified against him, the soldiers who mocked him, the governor who sentenced him to die on a cross. He was rejected by his hometown, by his family. He was abused by the priests that beat him and the soldiers that hung him up to die and all the people that swore at him while he's hanging on the cross and mocked him. He was struck again and again. His beard was pulled out. They took his cloak and his tunic. He was left to die naked in shame. And in all this, Peter writes this. 1 Peter 2.23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus isn't asking us to go anywhere he hasn't already been. We often talk about following Jesus. This is what following Jesus looks like. This is where we learn to love our enemies. At the cross. Where we see ourselves, the enemies of God, that Jesus died to forgive So that's my encouragement to you. Stay near the cross. Hold on to the love that Jesus showed for you there. Think about what it would have been like to have heard him say as the soldiers were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As they cast lots to divide his garments. God is calling us to love like that. To love our enemies as those who were once enemies ourselves, that our reward would be great in heaven and all would know that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. May the Lord give us grace to understand and to obey. Let's ask Him for that grace now. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your help. Help to understand and to deal with, Lord, the the hardness, the difficulty that's here. 
difficulty sometimes in even understanding, and then difficulty in especially in applying. We know in some cases it can be very complicated. We need wisdom, Lord, from your spirit, from your, your church, your people. We pray you would give it. But we pray that we would not retreat into our comfort of just not retaliating, not responding, but, Lord, that we would be able to charge into the darkness to overcome evil with good and thus display, show others the power of your love, your grace. Lord, we know there will be a day when it will be too late, when all that will be available on that day is the magnification of your perfect justice and righteousness through judgment. And it will be a good day. So our prayer now is for our enemies, those that hate the church, those that hate the biblical worldview, those that hate the biblical picture of human sexuality, those that hate you, Lord, would you do a radical work in opening their hearts and minds? Show them just how backward, just how wrong, just how blind they are. Remove the scales from their eyes. And may we be those that regularly love them. What better way to love than to proclaim the gospel, to pray for our enemies, to even endure hardship, Lord. Give us grace, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.